As we begin this morning, I just want to pose some, a few questions for you to ponder. They're not deep questions. They're not anything that is going to bring in an aha moment to your mind. But very likely questions that we, we probably don't often think about. But think with me for a moment. Why is it that we gather in this place each week? Or if you're visiting, maybe why would you gather in a place like this week after week? Why do we do the particular things that we do when we do come together in this place? Why do we, why do we sing songs out loud together in unison? Why is it that we do that? Why do we choose to even sing songs at all? Why do we choose the very songs, the kinds of songs that we choose, ranging in all kinds of styles and, and whatever your preference may be might affect that at times? Why do we do this? Why does someone come, as Jared did, at some point in the service and, and read aloud from the Bible while everyone else sits quietly listening? Why do you sit for, dare I say, 45 minutes listening to me or someone like me speak from a chosen text of the day? Now, you probably don't go through that series of questions very often. Maybe you do, I don't know. But some of you might very well have a good response to that if I were to ask you that face-to-face. Others of you may very well be asking, even as I pose those questions, hmm, why do we? Why are things the way that they are? But because we are often in the culture or context of the church, we don't. Ponder these things. We simply take some things such as these for granted. You might respond to a question like that by saying, well, well, because Randy, that's 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 just what we do. That's just what we do when we come here. This is the normal routine for a Sunday morning when we gather in a place like this in the, the gathering of the church. But consider with me for just a moment what this kind of gathering, particularly this right here, what this might look like to someone who has no knowledge of how churches conduct their particular meetings. What if you had never been inside a gathering like this? And, and not only that, that you, you didn't have any knowledge or any understanding of this concept. It was outside of your scope of experience. To such a one, the questions that I posed at the beginning, while they might not be articulated that way, might be pretty obvious. I mean, what are these people doing? Why are we going through these motions? Because regardless of the varying orders of services and the slight differences in the content of a church's gathering, most churches consist of somewhat of a similar routine. But why is that so? Why do we do this? Now, doesn't it seem, even in the slight bit, maybe you've part of this, doesn't it seem a little silly? Just a little bit silly that, that we do come here and we stand up and sit down and stand up and sing these songs together out loud. Does that ever come across your mind as kind of, you know, odd? And to do it over and over again with different songs. And even if you like singing with other people, and maybe you're one of those people you just love to sing... And so it wouldn't matter what the reason is. You, you're glad to be here and get to belt it out. If you're like one of those people, why would you subject yourself on Sunday morning, week after week, especially today, for some time, like right now, sitting there staring at this beautiful face? Oh, well, we can understand that, right? But why, why, why? I, I can't. Honestly, as the one up here, I can completely understand why, why all this might seem a little unusual to an outsider. Honestly, and this is my honest opinion, doing all this week after week after week over and over again is slightly a little bit foolish. Unless, of course, the Bible is true. If indeed Christ has risen 
from the dead, then everything that we do begins to make sense. We come this morning to debatably the greatest event in all of history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I add that word debatably not because that's questionable with me, uh, but because there are many who believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ is nothing more than a fanciful myth. It's something to which many people give lip service to. And there may be someone even here this morning who would agree with that reality or lack thereof. Now, here's the thing. If those people are right, if, if they are right, then what we do here each week is not only silly and foolish, but it borders upon insanity. Let that soak in. If those people who believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is nothing more than really a fanciful myth, a great story of of motivation and encouragement at best, then what we do here week in and week out is not only silly and foolish, but it borders upon insanity. Our own Bible declares these words. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith, your belief is in vain. And he goes on and says a little bit later, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, here and now what we can see, touch, feel and understand, we are of all people most to be pitied. So even Paul agrees with the fact that if Christ is not risen, then we are indeed fools. Therefore, if Jesus Christ is not alive, then we are wasting our time at the very least and we ourselves should be pitied. Or even worse, we are foolishly deceived and bordering on the insane. But on the other hand, if Christ is indeed alive, then the resurrection and the resurrection really happened, then what we strive to do together in this place makes perfect sense. The seeing, the listening to the Word of God, the sitting even as we are now and hearing God's Word explained. It is then... Those who look upon us as though we are the fools who are instead to be pitied. In fact, what we do in this place is merely the beginning. What we are doing right now, this gathering, is is just the beginning. If Christ is alive, then we should be concerned with much more than just gathering with the church on Sunday morning, right? This isn't the, the peak moment. This is more like the huddle. Getting ready for the play. Our entire lives instead should be wholly consumed with the resurrected Christ. If indeed he is risen. Now this whole issue, this, this, this deal that we're talking about, it revolves around one little word. I mean the, the, the issue rises with one little word that takes on an enormous meaning. And that simple word is the word if. If Christ is risen. If he is. So then the ultimate question then becomes for you and I this morning. Whether we've considered it in the past and come up with the answer doesn't matter. It's still the question for us to consider this morning. Is Jesus Christ alive? Is he or is he not? The answer to this question changes everything. It doesn't only change your attendance to a service on Sunday mornings. It changes everything. Everything. If Christ is not alive, we are fools. If he is alive, then the Bible is true and eternity hangs in the balance. So let's look this morning as we consider this and read John's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 23. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, 
they have taken away the Lord. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth with which Jesus, which, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and saw him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Let's pray together. Our Father, We thank you for the occasion on which we gather here this morning. We can definitely say that ultimately this occasion is no different than than any Sunday. And really no different than any day of our lives. Because as believers, having experienced your marvelous grace and salvation, we celebrate this reality, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, every single moment of our lives. But God, we, we do thank you for an opportunity like this to commemorate in a special way, in a, in a grander way, the, uh, the greatest event in all of history. But Father, there are many, many, maybe even some among us this morning who, who don't really believe that the resurrection really happened. And so God, I pray even this morning that if there are those here, who are struggling with that reality, I pray, Lord, that even today you would open their eyes to the glorious truth. Help them, Lord, to be able to comprehend, even in a slight way, the majesty of this gospel message and, and embrace it wholeheartedly, repenting of their sins and believing. And Father, for those of us who who have experienced that grace here this morning, I pray, Lord, that this would not be merely a routine that we go through year after year or even Sunday after Sunday, but rather we would come this morning expectant, knowing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are working in the hearts and lives of your people. And so, God, this morning we ask you to do that very thing that you've promised to do and change us, O Lord. Thrill our hearts with the gospel. 
calls us to see the resurrection in a fresh way, in a way that would compel us to walk out of here and it to affect everything in our lives. And God, have your way in this time. Give us ears to hear, I pray. And give me a mouth to speak, not merely my words, but words that you will use to challenge hearts and change lives. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we have considered the death and burial of Jesus as we arrived at this point in the Gospel of John. And throughout John's Gospel, we were reminded that, that Jesus has set his sights on the hour. It is a phrase that continues comes out up in John. And, and he was looking toward that hour. And that hour was his suffering, his crucifixion and subsequent death. And as Jesus hung on that cross, we, we have seen he... He declared with his lips, it is finished. And then the scripture tells us that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The work that Jesus had been seeking to accomplish was, in essence, complete. He had declared himself to be God in the flesh and as such had gone to a cruel cross to pay the ultimate sacrifice for sin, for my sin, for your sin. And in those final moments of his life and and in his death itself, Jesus became sin for us so that, as Paul writes in Corinthians, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our place paying the debt of sin that we owe, that we are responsible for, that we deserve. In his death, he took upon himself the the full wrath of God. That wrath that was is targeted at sin. He, he took that upon himself so that rebellious sinners like me and like you might be reconciled with God. And after his death, Jesus was taken down from that cross. His body was prepared for burial and he was placed in a tomb. And, and for those who walked with him, we, we have seen it. It seemed as though everything had come to an abrupt end. Suddenly. This grand ministry for three years just came to a screeching halt. But, but as John and the other gospel writers revealed to us, the story was not over. In fact, it, it wasn't even close to being over. The story, in fact, was only getting started. And on that Sunday morning following that awful Friday afternoon, John declares that Jesus rose from the dead. An amazing claim. John offers us a record of these events in in the gospel that we're reading. Declaring that these words that he writes are true. And while there are many who would be, or who who would disagree with this account, as there would have been even in John's day, John doesn't take the approach of, of setting forth an apologetic argument. He doesn't try to seek to dispel all the varying alternative views to the resurrection because there are many out there and I'm sure there were even in his day. He simply provides for us a narrative account that, and then urges us on the basis of this account to believe. Here it is, now believe. Now, while there is a great deal of apologetic evidence or arguments for the resurrection... Ultimately, ultimately, we discover that evidence is not what makes the difference to whether or not someone believes. Therefore, John merely tells the story, which then raises the question of whether you believe it or not. If there, if there are some here this morning who have never trusted in Christ by repenting of your sins and believing the gospel message that we are reading about and you have possibly heard about, you must deal with the question, is Jesus alive? That's the question you have to answer. Is he alive? And for those of you who are here who who have trusted in Christ, you have experienced God's grace and salvation, We too must continually deal with that very same question. Is he alive? Is he really alive? Because if the answer to that question for you 
is yes. If you really believe that, then we must deal with the significant implications that then follow. So as we consider this text this morning of John's account, I I want us to focus on three implications that arise from John's record of Jesus' resurrection. It is not my burden this morning to try to dispel all the different views of the resurrection. There are better people to do that than me. We simply want to look at John's account and see what arises from that. And so here are the implications that I want us to look at. Number one, if Jesus is alive, then we as sinners are accountable to believe. Number two, if Jesus is alive, then he is indeed the sovereign Lord of all. Number three, if Jesus is alive, then the church, that is us, who make that that body, are obligated to preach the gospel. So let's look at these three. First, if Jesus is alive... All people everywhere are accountable to believe. That's, that's all people of all times and, and everywhere today, not just here in this place, but everywhere in this world and who will ever be are accountable to believe. You see, upon coming to the tomb on this Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene discovered that, that the tomb was open when she arrived. And immediately she assumed the worst. I mean, she was a sensible woman, it seems. Someone had to have come during the night and and removed Jesus' body. But who? Who would have done that and why? So in response to that, without having any further information, she then turns and, and rushes back to report her discovery to the disciples. And then John tells us that in response to that report, Peter and the other disciple, whom we believe to be John himself, responded by running to the tomb to verify Mary's report. John stops at the tomb, he tells us in his account, and he looks in from the outside and he sees the grave clothes. And then Peter, arriving a little bit after John, doesn't stop at the door, but rather he enters the tomb for a a much closer look. And in addition to seeing the, the grave linens lying there, he also sees, John tells us, the face cloth lying in a place set apart. Now, with all that narrative, which is important, I want us to now focus or take special note of verses 8 and 9. 8 tells us that the other disciple, that is John, now enters the tomb, and then here's what it says. And he saw and believed. It's just a quick phrase. In the, in the midst of this narrative story, you kind of flow through the story, and then suddenly just tucked in there, just this quick little phrase, and he saw and believed. Now, You might look at this account and and consider this account as as one of those supports for the idea that, you know, many people would say, well, seeing is believing, right? I mean, if if you see it, you know, know, some people would say, don't believe anything you hear and only half of what you see. But nevertheless, if we can see something, then then we'll believe it. So seeing is believing. And and this seems to be maybe what, what John makes a point of here. But see... The interesting thing is that issue becomes the focus of the next narrative that follows this, beginning in verse 24, with the disciple Thomas. That is the seeing, believing issue. However, interestingly enough, it isn't. It isn't what John saw that brings about this response of belief. Now, John doesn't give us a whole lot of clarity here, but I think it's clear enough. It isn't what he saw. It was... What he didn't see, wasn't it? John provides at this point no comment for us about Peter. You know, we we want to go, well, what about Peter? You know, here he is. What was going on in Peter's mind? Well, he doesn't tell us. We don't know at this point whether or not Peter believed as well. He may have. Or whether that, that issue came later for Peter. We don't know. It's not the focus. What is implicit in John's account is that something significant happened. Something happened in that moment as John walked into the tomb and and he saw and believed. He witnessed these grave linens that were void of the body. Something clicked. Something something meshed, it seems, that, that hadn't before. Something caused John to suddenly and in that moment to believe. He just believed. 
the evident question then becomes for me, at least as I read that, he saw and believed. He believed what? What, what was it that he believes? Because up to this point in John's narrative, John has yet to mention that Jesus has risen. The only account we've gotten so far is that Mary had reported that someone had taken his body or removed his body and they don't know where it has lain. John sees and he believes, but believes what? And it is in verse 9 that this supplies the content for which we understand what John is believing. Verse 9 goes on and says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that, that he must arise from the dead. So, so we immediately understand what is it that John's believing. He's believing that Jesus has risen. Nobody said it at this point. Nobody suggested it. But John sees, and this is what he believes, that, that Jesus is risen from the dead. You see, Jesus had spoken on this, hadn't he? You say, well, it's obvious. Jesus had talked about this on several occasions, about his own resurrection. Even the scripture in the, the Old Testament uh, spoke of Messiah's resurrection, however, maybe not as clear. But up to this point, the Bible tells us that they, I believe the disciples, were in some way blinded to this reality. Even with all of Jesus' words and all his talk about going away and, and all these things, uh, about the cup he was going to drink, and uh, even with all his explanations, they hadn't gotten it. They were just kind of dumb. They weren't listening, we might think. But for whatever reason of which were never given full explanation, only that it was a fact that they had not understood as yet. In this moment, for some reason, which John doesn't unpack for us, he doesn't explain it, he doesn't go and say, well, you know, then you know, I got to thinking, and, and I remember this, this, and this, and as I put those things together, it all made sense. He, he doesn't explain that to us, but for some reason, unreported, it all came together, just... John probably couldn't even explain it in a moment. It just did. And verse 9 states that up to that moment, as we saw that he didn't understand. Up to that moment, as yet, he, they did not understand. And it states this as the explanation to John's belief. John entered the tomb. He saw and believed. For, as yet, they had not understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. But now, in the moment, John did. John didn't come to the same conclusion that Mary had. He saw the same thing, right? But his conclusion wasn't, somebody took them away. He saw it and he believed. The cause of this belief, he's smarter than Mary. He paid closer attention than the other disciples, right? He was a better student. He took notes. You know, he didn't fall asleep during preaching. No. Verse 9 tells us. It's the point, it's the reason for which verse 9, verse 9 says, for as yet they had not understood the scripture. But guess what? Now he did. So what is the basis of John's believing? Well, he sees what's not there. And as a result of the word of God, he believes. Now, it's not as though evidence doesn't provide one with a reason to accept a particular claim to truth, but that evidence alone is not enough. It's not as though if we could just make someone see the, the verifiable proof that Jesus rose from the dead, then they would just believe that's not the problem. Not saying that that's not good for us to do, but that's not the problem. The gospel is filled with visible evidence of Christ's miraculous power, yet many who witnessed them still didn't believe. You remember the story in John 6? You know, he feeds the 5,000. It's an amazing miracle. Everybody knew it. Jesus disappears. The crowd's like, wow, cool. Let's find him. They chase him down. They find him. They go, hey, man, show us a sign. What? What was that? Show us a sign. Prove to us that you're something special. I mean, this is, this is about years later. This is, this is like a day maybe later. And he, Jesus had just done a miracle. And they still didn't believe. It wasn't enough. I mean, we could go back to Scripture over and over again to see all the miracles that God worked on behalf of his people. And they still went, uh, I don't know about that. God provides manna. Well, I don't know if it's going to be enough. God delivers them through the Red Sea. I don't know if God will protect us through this next one. You know, I don't know if he can. You, you see what I'm saying? It's evidence alone is not enough. 
On the other hand, believing is not an act of what we might call blind faith. It's not, you know, it's not the closing your eyes and falling backwards hoping somebody will catch you. Blind kind of thing. Especially if there's nobody back there. There, there's more to biblical faith than merely saying, I believe. You see, we often think of faith, because the word's used in so many different contexts. We think of faith so similar to that child story, the little engine that could. Y'all know that one? Okay, I'll make sure it's not just a North Carolina thing. Okay, the little engine that could, you know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I know I can. And he chugs up the mountain and he makes it because he... He mustered up that strength. And, and we often think of faith as just that. If we just muster up enough faith, then it will somehow make something true. That isn't the belief that is presented in the Bible at all. And that is not the faith that is presented here in the text found in John for John's statement on seeing and believing. Biblical faith is based upon fact that can and has been Verified, But evidence is not the ultimate basis of biblical faith. John didn't believe because he saw Jesus after his resurrection. That's not why John believed. Although, now understand that that surely was true for some. John's belief was a result of the scripture at work in him. And while John doesn't comment on it here, the New Testament is complete with teaching on the fact that faith is a gift that is given by God. It's not something we muster up from within. And while there are many compelling arguments that can be discussed concerning the validity of the resurrection, we are reminded that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by... Do you know how to finish that? By the Word of God. It is the Word of God at work in us that enables us or anyone to believe. And without it, no one will believe, no matter how much evidence or proof you present to them. Without the Word of God, no one can believe. To believe, understand this, believe means to take God at His Word. That makes sense, doesn't it? You can't believe without the Word of God because it means to take God at His Word. It doesn't just mean to say, I believe. You know, I hope so. I believe it can happen so that because I believe it's going to happen. That's not at all what biblical faith is. It's exactly what happens to John. Even before seeing Jesus alive with his own eyes, the scripture that he had as yet not understood suddenly came alive. And he believed. The reality of the resurrection makes every single one of us accountable to believe. Jesus' death and resurrection, while sufficient for every single person and and is sufficient enough for billions and billions more, is only efficient for those who truly believe, for those who take God at his word. And if Jesus is alive, then then we are all accountable to to respond in that way, to, to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And now you must come to terms with this reality by either accepting that and believing or by rejecting that and saying, absolutely not. There is no neutral position. We don't get to walk around life and kind of go, yeah, it's a good story. I like it. Yeah, I believe it and live life our way. That's not the way it works. I would say for that person, they don't believe because your answer to that question changes everything. The second implication that arises from John's account of the resurrection is if Jesus is alive, he is the sovereign Lord over all. You see, the disciples, it tells us, then return to their homes. <laughs> kind of an anticlimactic finish, right? Jesus, John saw and he believed. And the disciples returned to their homes. It's not what you expect, is it? But the story now turns our attention in a different direction. It's now back to Mary Magdalene. She's now standing outside the tomb weeping because she thinks someone has stolen the body. Mary's perspective has yet to change. Even when she's questioned by the two angels, she peeks into the tomb. She sees two angels. You're like going, duh, come on. Is that not enough? 
she sees the two angels, they say, you know, why are you weeping? What does she say? Well, wait a second. Maybe I've got this wrong. Uh, I'm not so sure now. No, she says, because they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Her, her perspective hasn't changed. She responds to them the same way as she initially did to the disciples. Her, her outlook is exactly what it began. Then she encounters Jesus. It's a pretty good thing when that happens, right? But for reasons unexplained, she didn't recognize him. Now, we could take the time, and many take the time, to speculate about why it is that Mary didn't recognize Jesus at that time. But it's sufficient to say that since the scripture doesn't state the reason, it's probably not all that important. Some say, you know, she was weeping, so her eyes were all cloudy, and she just didn't recognize it doesn't matter. Well, we don't know why. It's not important to John's point in the text. Upon Jesus addressing Mary by name, for some reason, she didn't recognize him when he says Mary. She recognized him as her beloved teacher. And apparently, in her great overwhelming joy, she embraces him in some way. Some would argue she probably fell to the ground, wrapped herself around his feet. Uh, we don't know, but she does in some way. And, and to this, Jesus responds, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, regardless of the multiple questions that we might, that might arise over this encounter, the ultimate point is that Jesus was ascending to the Father. That's, that's what he's conveying here. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go and tell my brothers, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm ascending. For this reason, he instructs Mary to report this to his brothers, that is, the disciples. Christ's ascension to the Father was no insignificant matter. It was very important. It wasn't to be glossed over. It was this event, this was the culmination of everything that was, that was happening. It was this event that Jesus sought to explain to his disciples in the, in the uh, farewell discourse in John 14 through 16. This final act on Jesus' part would ultimately secure the sending of the Holy Spirit as he taught them, who would then empower them to continue the very mission that he started here on this earth. It was this event that that would secure for Christ all authority over heaven and earth, as Matthew reports to us in the 28th chapter of his gospel. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go into all nations and make disciples. And it was this very same event that if we turn to the Old Testament, we find that Daniel, the prophet, even wrote about in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where he writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, uh, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, in Christ's resurrection and his subsequent ascension to the throne of God, he conquered sin and death for all who would believe, and was, in addition to that, declared to be Lord over all. While Mary was overwhelmed in this scene, uh, when she saw Jesus alive, as I'm sure any of us would have been, uh, his resurrection was, was not merely about reunion. <laughs> that was the point. Don't cling to me in that way. Don't, don't just hang on to me. It's not about me just being back alive and with you again. It, it wasn't merely about emotional relief over the grief that, that they have, had suffered or she had suffered in the previous days because Jesus had died. But it was about fulfilling all of God's purpose, all of God's plan. And this required him going away as he had previously taught the disciples so that the enemy would fully and finally be defeated through the mission of the church. If Jesus is alive, he has ascended to the throne of God and remains there until the time in which he will return again. In his first coming, the Bible teaches us that he conquered the power of sin. He freed us from the very bondage that sin placed over us and had a hold of us. When we're saved, we are set free from that bondage of sin. We still live and dwell in the presence of sin. And when he comes again, he will vanquish the presence of sin once and for all. And until that day, even this very moment, he reigns as sovereign Lord over his kingdom. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings right now. He's not waiting for that someday in the future. He gained that title in his ascension. 
His kingdom now presently has no geographic boundaries. It's much grander than that. It is made up of a people from among every nation. His kingdom is a present reality today. Though we still await for the arrival of his kingdom in all its fullness, it is a present reality. He is reigning. He is Lord. Even now. And until that day comes, when that kingdom comes in all its fullness, when, when sin is eradicated in both its, in the sense of its power and then in its presence, where it's taken away, the church now serves as the evidence of his rule and reign over his present kingdom and has as her mission the expansion of that kingdom, which brings us to our final and third implication, or third and final implication. If Jesus is alive, the church is obligated to preach the gospel. The final scene of our text today <clears throat> takes place later that evening as the disciples are hidden away behind locked doors because the Bible tells us they were afraid. They feared the Jews. And John reports that Jesus came and stood by them and declared a simple phrase, peace be with you. Well, that fixes everything, doesn't it? <laughs> After seeing Jesus, they turn, they, they hear this voice, they turn, they seeing, and they, they are overjoyed, it tells us, and, and then Jesus again. I mean, if the first time didn't fix everything, then Jesus says again, peace be with you. Peace, not fear, was to be the experience of Jesus' followers. Even these men, and remember who these men were? These are all the ones that said, Whew. We're out of here, except for John. They were gone. They were afraid. They feared for their lives. And they still were fearing it for their lives. Why? Because they identified with Jesus. But Jesus comes and he says, peace, not fear. This would be the experience of his followers. And while in the flesh, they feared the, the consequences that may befall them because of their identification with Christ. Jesus seeks to assure them. And he still does this even today. Jesus' words may very well have reminded them of his words just before his arrest. And we read about them in John 14. At the very beginning of verse 1, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then later in that same chapter, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Not peace that is dependent upon the ease of your circumstances, but a peace that exceeds that. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And this was not a declaration of ease in this life for the disciples. The rest of the New Testament bears that one out. But of peaceful assurance in the midst of the tribulation that would come as a result of living for Christ in this world, being in this world, but not of this world. So upon this assurance of peace, Jesus commissioned his followers, that is his disciples, the apostles, to, to go. In the same way that Christ was sent by the Father into this world, Christ says he was now sending them into the world. To do what? To proclaim the word of God for the glory of God for the purpose of redeeming sinners. And as Christ passes this mission on, they were to now continue that mission with one added addition. They were to proclaim the word of God for the glory of God to exalt Christ. And redeem sinners. Jesus then exhorts them to receive the Holy Spirit. As, as we understand, his teaching on the Holy Spirit was going to be the, the enabling, the empowering uh, ability within them to do or carry out what they are commissioned to do. So he, he exhorts them to receive the Holy Spirit and he commissions them with a very unique mission, which might cause us a little trouble in the way it's worded. The mission with which they are given is, is in fact, the mission of the church. It, is the church who is founded upon the apostles, the Bible teaches us. And as such, we continue the very work that they began, which is none other than the mission that Christ himself began. These words recorded by John reflect the very same words that Christ had shared in Matthew's gospel. In, in John's words, he says, If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now, in Matthew's gospel, we find similar, similar exhortation in chapter 16 and chapters 18. Except that Matthew records this, this very mission in terms of binding and loosing rather in the terms, than in the terms of forgiving. But the intent, the concept is the same. The church possesses the power of forgiveness in so much 
that she has been given the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in this proclamation that sinners come to experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The church forgives sins as the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Because when we proclaim the gospel, people hear the gospel. And as a response of hearing the gospel, what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God does great things through his word, which is in fact what I'm arguing happened with John himself. So we, we, we offer forgiveness to lost people as we proclaim the gospel message of forgiveness. But then the church withholds forgiveness as she refuses to carry out this mission and to keep our lips sealed, do our own thing, make our lives what we want them to be, and leave the rest out. We, the church, have been given a glorious but great responsibility. We exist for one purpose alone, to proclaim the gospel message. We are to declare that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead and reigns as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But, or excuse me, we have been given the opportunity to participate in God's eternal plan. I mean, think about that. How, how could we do anything less? I mean, God says, this is my purpose and plan. Now, it's yours to carry out. We get to participate in that through proclaiming this great message. And because Christ is alive, we are obligated to proclaim the word of God for the glory of God to exalt Christ and redeem sinners. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. If he is alive, then the Bible is true and every person is accountable to repent of their sin and believe the gospel message. Those who do not will face the ultimate penalty. The ultimate penalty of your sin. The gospel message is not a message of morality. It's not a message of good works, but it's one of what has been termed substitutionary atonement, which means simply Christ stood in our place. He lived the life that you have to live if you want to be right with God. A perfect life. He lived it because you couldn't. Because you were a sinner. He then died the death that you and I should die. Because it's the death we deserve because we are rebellious sinners against God. But he did it so that we wouldn't have to. And then he rose victorious over sin, death, and the grave, bringing us the hope of eternal life apart from both the power and the presence of sin with our God forever. If Jesus is alive, we can be confident that he is reigning as sovereign Lord over all this very moment. There is nothing in this life beyond his reach. There is nothing in this life that is outside of his control. He is governing all things, all things, and guiding them to his intended end. And as the sovereign Lord of all, he will one day return to fully and finally make all things new again. If Jesus is alive, we, the church, his body, are obligated to proclaim the gospel message. It's not really an option. It's not a debate. We are to proclaim the gospel message to any and to all so that they too might come to know the marvelous grace of of our Savior and Lord. And thus, as a result, we extend this kingdom in here in this age until Christ finally brings it in its fullness. We have been commissioned with a great and glorious task, one that does not come with the promise of ease, but does come with an amazing promise of peace and a glorious promise of joy. The only question that is left for you and I to answer this morning and every day It's simply this. Is he alive? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, church, come, stand in the light. Our God is not dead. Say it with me. He's alive. Our Father, we thank you this morning that our Savior is alive. And I recognize that just because I say those words doesn't make it so. But Father, you have given us your word. And more than that, you have given your spirit. And your word teaches us that 
that as we declare this message, whether we do it well or whether we fumble through it, whether we cover all the details or we leave something out, that you will work in accordance to your word to change hearts and lives. And so, Father, that's exactly what we, we desire to see happen in this very moment. That in all my imperfections, in all my fallibility, I'm sought to speak forth the gospel message. Now, God, we simply ask that in spite of me, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would cause your word to work in hearts and bring life and joy and peace where it doesn't already exist. Father, we pray that eyes are opened and ears are unstopped, that minds are cleared and hearts are changed to embrace the glorious message. The Father, we recognize that this message is not merely for those who have yet to come to know you, but even for those of us who, who do believe. We, we've said we believe, but yet we struggle each and every day as we walk out these doors to live our lives in light of the resurrection because we live as though Christ is not alive. And I pray, Lord, you would convict our hearts because you have given us such a unique privilege to participate in the greatest plan of all times. And that is the, the, to participate in the gospel message being proclaimed that your kingdom would come in all its fullness. You've told us in your word that the gospel would be preached to every nation. And then the end, that is the fullness of your kingdom, would come. And so, God, I pray that you deal with the hearts of your people this morning as well challenge us, compel us, impassion us for the sake of the gospel, all because we can emphatically say, whether or not the world thinks we're fools or not, we can say, Christ is risen from the dead, and he lives forevermore, reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords this very moment. So do what only you can do in our hearts and our lives this morning, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.